Welcome to Urban Dharma, the podcast, where suffering is optional. Hi, this is Reverend Kusla coming to you from downtown Los Angeles, from the International Buddhist Meditation Center in the heart of Koreatown. What you're about to hear is Class 3, Part 2 of a series of talks given at Loyola Marymount University in the spring of 2007 on the Eightfold Path. In Class 3, Part 2, we have a guest speaker, Reverend Echo Little, the abbot of Shasta Abbey in Mount Shasta, California. He was visiting our center and um, agreed to uh, speak to the class. So I think you'll find it interesting, and I think you'll find it useful. So without further explanation, this is Class 3, Part 2, taught by Reverend Echo, the abbot of Shasta Abbey in Mount Shasta, California. And so having said that, this is our Reverend Echo. He's the abbot of Shasta Abbey. Thank you. It's nice to see all of you tonight. Um, to, to follow along with what Reverend Kusala was talking about with regard to uh, about meditation, in uh, my tradition, uh, my style of meditation is called uh, serene reflection. And the serenity part of it is um, also translated as tranquility, or as Reverend Kusala was saying, uh, the shamatha. And the uh, reflection is also translated as observation or seeing, uh, vipassana, or mindfulness. So in our meditation practice, we are actually uh, practicing uh, shamatha and vipassana uh, simultaneously. And uh, if you think about it in terms of two different things, uh, it will confuse you especially when you're trying to practice meditation and especially when you're trying to do it for the first time. So the way that I like to think about it is that it's very much like riding a bicycle in the sense that you need to have two things to ride a bicycle. You need to pedal and you need to balance. And you know that if you do not pedal, you will not go anywhere. And you know that if you do not balance, you will fall over. So the early parts of bicycling are learning how to do your balancing and your pedaling at the same time. And you usually start off with one aspect or another. In the uh, Zen tradition, which is uh, the tradition that I am from, you start off with the tranquility aspect of meditation first. And you sit down and you sit erect. Usually we do it in a, in a formal meditation hall, sitting on a meditation cushion. But um, if we may try uh, to do it here and now, it will, I will be able to give you a, a taste of the mind of meditation and what you're trying to do with your mind when you practice this form. If you would just sit forward in your chair uh, in a position that's comfortable, but with your back erect 
and erect enough so that you can breathe uh, naturally and normally. Put your hands in your lap with your thumbs together uh, like this. This is a, a mudra. It's called the smile of the Buddha, the dhyana mudra. And have your eyes open. Let them rest in front of you at uh, roughly a 45-degree angle, somewhere down in here. And it'll be helpful if you can put your feet flat on the ground just for this. Keep your eyes open. Reverend Kusala has told you about the, uh, the breath. So if you find that your mind is very, very distractible when you try to meditate, you can always focus on the sensation of your breath coming in and going out of your nostrils. You simply allow your gaze to uh, go down at a natural place in front of you. And you allow everything that is in your mind, your thoughts and your feelings, to arise and to pass away. In trying to explain what meditation is, we practice what is called natural thought. And natural thought can best be described as whatever arises naturally in the mind. It arises, it abides, it changes, and it disappears. But you're not thinking about it. You're just allowing things to arise, abide, change, and disappear. Do not try to think about whatever may arise. Do not not try to think about it. Just allow it to arise. And when it arises, whatever it may be, thoughts, feelings, sensations, do not try to hold it. Do not try to grasp it. Do not try to push it away. Do not try to reject it. Just allow it to arise, abide, change, and disappear. And simply sit still. Observe it. One of the ways that my teacher used to explain it, and keep your eyes open when you're doing it. One of the, the, if you're used to keeping your eyes closed when you meditate, this can be a little disorienting for closed-eye meditators. But we keep our eyes open because that helps to foster attention and awareness. The... Uh, The mind, because you are uh, alive, is going to come up with all sorts of thoughts. Your body is going to have all sorts of feelings. um, You will have all sorts of perceptions. Simply allow them to arise, to abide, to change, to disappear, to arise and to pass. And to sit there with complete and total clarity. Don't hold on to your thoughts. Don't try to push them away. And just allow yourself to sit here for about five or ten minutes. And let us just sit here and and sit.
when we sit, we are mindful of whatever it is that is arising, but we do not try to hold on to it or push it away. In that sense, we let it go. We are not trying. We are not not trying. We are not grasping. We are not pushing away. We are not judging, and we're not in a fog. We are just sitting brightly, mindfully, neither holding on to anything nor pushing anything away. This is just sitting, serene reflection.
And if we were in a temple, a bell would go, and that would be the end of our meditation period. And that's just five minutes. Now imagine what it's like to do that for a day, or two days, or three days, or three years, or 30 years, if you really work at it. The mind is very much like an ocean, and the waves are rolling across it. And there's this constant movement of thoughts which arise, abide, change, and disappear. And they can have all sorts of different shapes and forms, but as long as one stays rooted, first through the technique of counting that Reverend Kusla talked about, then through breath, and then just by sitting, you just simply see that which arises and passes. That is the tranquility aspect of meditation practice. Tranquility takes you to a certain point, and then the insight aspect of it begins to appear in which you actually see directly into the nature of the mind. And I will leave, because it is his class, I will leave it up to him to tell you about that if as and when he feels that's appropriate. But you can notice that your mind is a little bit quieter than when you begin. And that if you are simply sitting brightly with uh, awareness and attention, whatever is going on around you or within you just becomes part of the meditation. We can hear the sound of the um, air system. We could hear the man uh, next door who was laughing. We can feel the, the pain or the itch in our leg or the fact that we might be hungry or the fact that we might be thirsty or not. All of these things, they arise, they abide, they change, they disappear. And the nature of the mind is like this. What I think of as me arises abides, changes, and disappears at every moment. And when you begin to see that, you begin to understand what a wonderful practice meditation is. Because what we think of as one's self, which is born and dies, and which we clutch at so tightly, and which causes so much suffering, is actually arising, abiding, changing, and disappearing at each and every moment. And that is uh, liberating. So that's a, a very quick introduction to a serene reflection. Does anybody have any questions? Well, Reverend Apple's here. And please, you know, talk about what you notice or what you don't notice or... I, mean, I was just mm-hmm. about to ask you because mm-hmm. there were like uh, 
I mean, the model whole monkey mind. Mm-hmm. Sure. But um, there were times where I, I literally forgot. I was uh, sort of t- the best way to describe it was just seconds where time just wasn't relevant. Right. And then um, a couple of times I, would, I went back to the breath and I went, oh my gosh, I'm in the room at LMU. But there were seconds where I was just completely somewhat, I just don't know what Well, hopefully you're right here. And, and, and with some practice and distinction, you'll begin to discover whether you are, in fact, here all the time or whether you're off somewhere else in your mind. And I don't know you well enough to be able to tell you one way or the other. It's not um, uncommon. It doesn't happen all the time, but it's also not uncommon for experienced meditators to um, sit down, this has definitely happened to me, to sit down, the bell will go, and then you'll just sit there. And it is as if a minute or two has gone by. And in fact, 40 minutes have gone by. The mind can be that quiet and still. And there are other times when... um, you know, yeah, it feels like 45 days, depending on, on what is uh, what you're carrying around with yourself on that particular day. But yes, there are those there are those moments, and then they begin to extend themselves, and actually that becomes an aspect of your consciousness and the way that you look at everything. I was going to say, how do you bring that to sort of real world in your daily? Well, by applying that same kind of bright mindfulness to whatever you're doing, and uh, you focus on the activity and less on the self that is performing the activity, there's a a great uh, amount of emphasis in our monastic tradition about with um, manual activity, but focusing on activity and using activity as a way to ground your mindfulness. And as you ground your mindfulness and you are aware of what you're doing, then you also practice not holding on and not pushing away. And you also learn to study yourself in the situation you are in, whatever that is in, in daily life, to realize how much self there is in, or not self there is in what we do. And you learn to let it go, not holding on, not pushing away. That is the big principle that's at work. Yeah. Yes? Um, what's the, um, the difference in effect between meditating in a big group and just meditating by yourself? Because monks usually meditate all together. Is that the case? In our community, we meditate all together, usually. Um, in some communities, they would meditate by themselves. Um, we're, we're used to the majority of us do our meditation together, but we also do private retreats where we're meditating on our own and maybe by ourselves for a month or something like that. Um, I, think that it's, I think that it's very encouraging to sit by oneself. And also, um, it is less possible for the mind to do all sorts of uh, tricks of imagination and this and that if your one neighbor next to you is falling asleep and the other you can hear their lunch moving around in the middle of them. Um, it brings a, a, uh, 
a, a factor of reality to what you're doing, or someone is, you can hear their breathing go in and out. You learn that um, those are not distractions. You don't have to think about them. You just learn to um, accept and allow the, the sound, the sensation, the sight to arise by change and disappear. Group practice is always much more encouraging because everyone is there. There always seems to be more energy there. Um, and one of the things about solitary practice is that you have to be able to generate that energy by yourself. And so I think it's nice to have a balance of both if you can. But usually, for in our tradition, you start off with um, a lot of people. And you sit fairly close together. Could you explain your Zendo? We have a, what is called a traditional um, Sodo, which is uh, Japanese for a monk's hall. And this is a room, it's 50 by 50. And uh, the walls are lined with um, platforms and cupboards. Platforms are about two feet off the ground. And uh, the spaces are about three feet wide by about six feet long. And each monk has their meditation cushion there. When you come to the Soto, as a novice monk, you actually um, sit on that seat and sleep there, and you eat your meals there um, if you are in good physical condition for about five years. You, you leave the room, obviously, and you go to other parts of the monastery, but you learn to um, sleep and eat and meditate in the same spot, which teaches you that you have to be grounded within yourself. And so the, the life that you are choosing to accept, and this is of course for monastics, roots you in the meditation practice and teaches you um, that this is your refuge and your real place where you learn to sit still in the midst of everything. And then you come out of this building, out of this room, to go out about your business in the monastery. You know, we work and we um, take walks and we do all the things that we do. But we're constantly returning to our place in the meditation hall. And, you, and it is supposed to give you the um, idea and inculcate the understanding that you're constantly returning to the state of mind to teach you to be still and to be mindful in all circumstances. And everything in the monastery is there to teach you how to do that. But the, the meditation hall is the place where you learn that in the beginning. And could you mention something about the uh, cupboards and the trapdoor? Oh, the, um, <laughs> the trapdoor. The, um, the cupboards are the places, um, the, the, um, if you were to look at a meditation platform from the side, it would be like an L. Okay? And the, the bottom leg of the L is three feet wide by six feet long. And then the um, top part is about maybe 18 inches wide. And for the novice monk, meditation hall dweller, you keep your clothing, your monastic clothing, in the top cupboard. And you keep your um, bedding in the bottom cupboard. 
and the bedding is usually um, you know sheets and a blanket and uh, a monk's bed, which is a foam pad. And then that's what you have. That those are your possessions. And you keep everything right in that place. And you sit and you eat and you sleep and you are always practicing meditation there in that place. The trap door that he was referring to is a, um, a place in the meditation platform. It's a little platform that pulls out. Sometimes people, as they get older, they, they don't um, have as uh, good an ability to sit cross-legged. So they can sit with their feet down. And we've perfected this design of a meditation platform so you can either sit cross-legged or with your feet down and you put your feet on a little platform underneath. So that enables uh, monks who are more, more elderly or who have back problems or this kind of thing to have a comfortable place to sit. And then if, you have, if it's really bad, you can put a, a chair there if need be, a simple chair. We have um, uh, one young person, (laughs) Um, the youngest person who's there is uh, 30. He just turned 30. He was ordained last year. Our oldest monk is about 76. And the average age in the community is probably around my age, uh, mid-50s. We've got about eight who are above 60. And we've got um, a number of 40-year-olds. About 18 women and about uh, 12 men. Do you find that they obviously the the majority come in after living a certain aspect of their life? In other words, it's not like the Catholic tradition where you know if you were 17, your parents wanted you to be a priest. Well, well, it's interesting. You know, uh, we wouldn't let a person who's 17 come in. That's too young. Um, I think it depends partly on the community, partly on the times. Um, When I first entered the community, I was 19. And most of the people who were there were between 19 and 32. And um, that was in the 70s, you know, the early 70s. Now, um, the majority of the community are in their 40s, 50s, and 60s. And most of them have come from um, a life. You know, they've had careers, they've been married, they've had children. Um, And I think that happens in more settled communities. But oftentimes when the community is just beginning and you have a a teacher like we had who is very um, charismatic and um, very remarkable, uh, it tends to bring in a lot of uh, young people, too. And that means that there's uh, also more turnover. Uh, there was a tremendous amount of turnover in uh, my generation in the early years. There were um, 33 people ahead of me, and um, there, there's one, uh, one left who was, who was ahead of me. But now the, the, the monks who come... Um, are much more stable, and they um, stay for life. So, and we screen them too, very, very carefully, as carefully as you can. Could you talk a little bit about the ordination process, the postulate, and the novice? Surely, the um, a person to be to become a monk uh, 
um, the first thing one would want to do is to become a Buddhist. <laughs> and um, so people usually come to our community as lay people, and um, they will, you know, do retreats and stay with us. Uh, and over a period of years, usually, they will give uh, rise to the um, intention to try to become a monastic. And um, if we know them, and if we feel that they are, um, you know, reasonably good people and reasonably stable, we would invite them to um, stay with us for approximately, I think, about a year. And during that time, they would um, be uh, interviewed by the uh, guest master, by the novice master, uh, and sort of be be being inspected by the rest of the monks to be observed to see you know what sort of a person are they and and how do they understand Buddhism and how do they get along with people and what are their strengths and their faults because this person is going to be living possibly going to be living with you for the rest of your life then um, if they uh, stay there for that long and they want to continue, they would fill out an application, which is about a, a four or five page document with the most invasive questions that you can ever imagine about every aspect of um, your life. And uh, also that w- the person would have a physical, complete physical, and um, based on their previous performance, based on what comes up in the uh, questionnaire and how they are, uh, what their physical health is like, then we will um, accept them or say or decline. And uh, if we accept them, they actually enter the community without um, ordaining. They become a postulant, which means that they um, cut their hair very close and they wear um, robes but they do not wear monastic vestments. Usually when you are ordained, you're given a, uh, an alms bowl and uh, a kashaya, a kesa. And these are the, the symbols of being a monk, and you take the monastic precepts. A postulant doesn't take that. They're actually a layperson still in robes. But they live with the community, in, in with the community, for approximately um, one to two years. And they try their vocation. They're, they're seeing if they're really suited to be being a monastic. And if they are, uh, at the end of that time, if they get to the point where they are um, ready to be ordained and the community um, agree and there are no objections, then um, the person is asked and invited to join the community. And um, then they ordain and then they uh, do uh, a novitiate, which lasts for about five years. You have to be uh, single and unmarried to be a monastic. It's all right if you were previously married um, and or if you have children. Um, In our tradition, there is no difficulty with um, sexual orientation whether a person was uh, supposedly nominally gay or straight, because every monastic practices celibacy anyway. 
So the, that issue is a non-issue as far as we're concerned. And um, the person has to be of, um, you know, a good moral character and be um, a reasonable human being who can reasonably get along with other people. Um, neither too um, unskillful in their social relations nor too skillful. If you're, if you're too good, that's a, uh, it makes me suspicious. <laughs> you want to see uh, a couple of really healthy warts in the early years. You want to see the person struggling, having a, having a hard time from time to time, but basically making progress. And uh, for us, although a, a Buddhist monk can leave at any time, the commitment that we are preparing them for is a life commitment. So we. And could you say a little bit about the uh, privacy issue, the lack of privacy? There is no privacy, um, <laughs> especially when you are young. Um, for the novices who are living in this room, you know, the meditation hall, it's a big room. Uh, we put a curtain down the middle to segregate uh, men and women. But basically, you're with other people all the time. And the only time when you are by yourself is um, if you're in the shower or if you're going to the bathroom. And you, you learn how to let go of the idea of privacy. You know, my room, my space, my, my what's it. And after a person has lived for um, two years as a, one to two years as a postulant and five years as a novice with no privacy, then when they leave the meditation hall formally as a, um, a, a young senior monk, that's when they have their first room. And they learn that their room is not, a, is not the refuge, but they have found the refuge inside of themselves. So their room becomes a place where they're actually practicing uh, meditation and practicing the uh, the Buddhist teaching, and then the room is not a problem for people. Oftentimes, if a person has come late in life, if they're older, um, it's hard for uh, people if they are over 50, 55, to live in the meditation hall. It's a bit strenuous for them, so we may give a uh, an older novice uh, a room which means that they're going to have more issues in some ways with um, privacy and possession. Um, but I figure that there's more than one way to skin a cat. And there's more than one way to uh, teach a person how to let go of their self. So I don't, I don't think that that's uh, a great difficulty. The advantage of, of having a, a young person is that the person's habits are not as strongly set. And um, the difficulty for a younger person is um, sex and reproduction. For an older person who's been there and done that, they've had their career, they've had their family, um, sex and reproduction uh, and being ambitious is not as much of of an issue, but um, habits are. It's much harder for an older person to let go of their habits. So it's hard no matter um, how old or how young you are. And you just learn to uh, do the training 
where you are at that particular time in your life. But I think a person who's you know, been married or had a, had a, a serious love affair, had committed relationships, they've done their educational training, they've had their job, um, they are, and they come to a monastery, they're usually more well-balanced in the long run. And we look for that in our application procedure. I, on the other hand, was 19 years old, you know, bursting with hormones. Um, ha- had only done a year and a half of university and, and hadn't worked that much in the world. And, of course, they made me the abbot. <laughs> but they you know, had to beat on my head for 25 years before I got to that point. <laughs> so. In terms of instruction, mm-hmm. classes, mm-hmm. exercise? Well, you do all that. Okay. You do all that. Um, I, I have to say that if you are, a, um, if you are an exercise uh, aficionado, you're going to have a hard time in a monastery. But I actually encourage the monks to walk, to do yoga, to do tai chi, um, and to stay as active as possible for as long as possible. Um, Because in your later years, it's literally use it or lose it. And to stay mentally active, you know, to read, to study. Um, Buddhism is such a vast subject that um, if you're motivated, you can be studying it for the rest of your life. And there are Dharma talks and classes and uh, retreats and, and all sorts of things for, um, for monastics. It is a simple, um, uh, straightforward, difficult, um, wonderful life. Uh, for, um, and not too many people want to do it. But for the ones who really want to do it, it's... Um, the most wonderful thing in the world. So. And there are many people who come who, who realize they don't want to do it. And there's a, a place in Buddhism for that as well. It's not just a monastic's religion. There's, there's a huge uh, role for the lay people, which you don't see a whole lot in America yet because Buddhist culture is not as developed here as it is in the East. But in the East, it's very obvious most of the people are uh, lay people, and most of them do not want to be uh, monks. Is, is your staff or help usually lay people that come in and do? No, everybody's a monastic, and are my everybody's a monastic. Yeah, everybody's a monastic. Everybody has a job. Everybody has responsibilities until the the day you die, basically. Um, everyone is, is part of the community. Everybody's engaged in the community. And um, everyone participates as a community. Um, the, the little privacy that you have in the beginning is also a way of learning how to um, live in a community and have that become part of your spiritual training because you are um, living with 30 mirrors all of which are constantly mirroring your own state of mind and your own behavior. And if you always, if you learn to look at that as a way of saying, you know, what can this person teach me about myself? It's an incredibly valuable experience. And yet it is also an ongoing um, 
hard training. There's a, a lovely joke that our uh, abbess used to, uh, used to tell us about two monks are brought before their abbot, and they have um, they were sitting at the at the um, breakfast table or the lunch table, and one of them stood up, took his bowl, and broke it over the other's head. And this was um, a very upstanding member of the community. He'd been there for 25 years. And the abbot looked at them and said, you know, what's wrong with you? Um, you know, you've been here all these years. You've done so well, and you attack one of the other monks. Why did you do that? And he said, well, uh, this morning, Brother John was slurping his soup like he's done for the past 20 years, and I couldn't stand it anymore. <laughs> <laughs> which, which teaches you that it's an, it's an ongoing, every moment, day-to-day practice that, that you can't just sort of you know, g- gather up bliss and then just coast on. <laughs> um, you're constantly being confronted with um, all the things that you're confronted with in life. And you actually choose that and choose that to... to um, help to train you, help to fi- help you to find the equanimity that Reverend Kusala was talking about. And not just through meditation itself, through the act of meditation, but through every aspect of your life and realizing that everything you do is sacred, everything is part of the, the religious practice. It's interesting to me that though, though there are significant differences, uh, there are significant similarities in the life Yes. Yes. As I mentioned, Kusla was involved with the Benedictines of St. John. Yes. And all that you've said is our life. Our life is is almost is very similar. You know, we we approach the actual religion from different perspectives, but the monastic life is, in, in a sense, it's universal. And uh, it's really interesting when you approach it in that way. Do you have a lot of conversations with with Catholic monks and Episcopal? We have some. Reverend Kusla is a specialist. You know, he do, he does he does a lot of it. Um, we do some of it ourselves, but not as much as he and some of my colleagues do. But they had a um, uh, a conference this uh, fall. The monks in the West. The for us, we're, because we come from the Mahayana tradition, we're, we're vegetarian. Yeah. So Theravada is not, is, or Mahayana, only Mahayana tradition is? Mahayana is, is vegetarian, yeah. Um, the, the traditional Mahayana is vegetarian. In Japan, they're not vegetarian. Theravada is, is um, some Theravadans are vegetarians, but Theravada, you basically accept what you're given. And the same with the Tibetans. So. We're getting close to the end of the book. Mm. Would you um, be so kind as to bless us with a traditional Buddhist blessing to end this class? Something that you might do with Shasta? Certainly. Um, A blessing. Well, we what we would do 
is we uh, we would make uh, just a dedication of merit, and um, we'd make a show like this. We dedicate the merit of our coming together and studying the Buddha Dharma for the awakening and enlightenment of all living beings. We pray for peace in all the world. We pray that evil may be overcome by good. We pray for the peace of our hearts and of our places of religious practice. And we pray that suffering will cease. Homage to all the Buddhas in all worlds. Homage to all the Bodhisattvas in all worlds. Homage to the scripture of great wisdom. Thank you all. It's been nice to meet you. Well, that's it. That was Class 3, Part 2, with Reverend Echo, the Abbot of Shasta Abbey, speaking on meditation. Hope you find it interesting. Hope you find it useful. If you'd like to know more about me, please visit my website, kusala.info. That's K-U-S-A-L-A dot info. If you'd like to download some free e-books on Buddhism, please visit buddhabooks.info. That's buddhabooks.info. Well, until the next time, until the next podcast, be happy, be peaceful, and most of all, be free from suffering.